0: Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Charles O'Malley here with me from Stroud in the West of England. Welcome to my podcast, Charles. Hi, Vesna, great to be here. And it's great that our uh, paths have crossed, uh, thanks to our friend, uh, Thieu de I think there is so, so much to uh, learn from, from you, so I'm really grateful. Charles O'Malley works at the intersection of personal, organizational and societal transformation. He has two decades of experience working on social and environmental issues with everyone, from startups to large corporates and governments. And prior to that, he was working in finance and venture capital. He currently spends half of his time as senior systems change advisor at the UN Development Programme, where he focuses on how to accelerate transformation in global food and agriculture systems. He spends the rest of his time involved in a range of projects that bring together personal, organizational and systemic change. Charlie, your bio is is filled with systems change and systemic change and so on. You also had this... um a decade of experience from the finance and venture capital industry, and now you're working a lot for the UN. But, but what are you actually doing at the UN?
1: Good question. Um, probably a lot of my colleagues are wondering the same question. Um, personally, I love, I love my job title. Senior Systems Change Advisor is a new one I invented for myself earlier this year, um, having led on our private sector engagement work for the last three years. And uh, for me, in some senses, it's a kind of dream job. Uh, because the remit is see how we can change the global food and agriculture system. And I guess it's the first time in my life I've had, you know, a job description like that, which at uh, the beginning was very exciting. I loved it when I started at the UN Development Programme. And then um, I went through a dip about halfway into the role uh, of hate, actually hating it, <laughs> basically, when I when I sort of woke up to some of the realities and some of the constraints that we operate under. I felt very disillusioned and now I've completely flipped and come back the other way. And so I can explain why that is. You know, you mentioned that my interest in personal organizational and systemic change, and I'm particularly interested in how these different levels interrelate and how uh, you need to be skillful at all those levels in order to, in my opinion, in order to catalyze effective systemic change. But what I discovered working at the UN level is there are quite a lot, there's quite a lot of technocratic thinking and habits of, that are sort of integrated into the kind of organizational design and culture and, and the way the international development community works. There is a bias towards sort of technocratic solutions, uh, which could be you know policy solutions, you know fiscal incentives, accelerators, et cetera, etc. Cetera. But the reality of systemic change is uh, way more complicated than that. So you need to understand history, culture, psychology, organizational change, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it, it can be attractive to ignore those those factors because it makes your life a lot more simple. If you just think, well, if I can change this one policy, then I'm going to affect change. But actually grappling with all those interrelated dimensions is, is a fascinating challenge to have. So I realized that everything that I was getting frustrated by in my role, the technocratic nature of the thinking and behaviors, not just within the UN system, but also within the ministries we we work with in the countries we operate, the large corporates that we engage with, the stakeholder groups, they will have some version of this. A lot of those felt like obstacles that were getting in the way of doing what I wanted to do. And then I kind of had the aha moment that 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 actually is the work, you know, all those things that feel like the stuff that feels like it's stuck and is getting in my way is the work that needs to be done. And it's basically understanding what is stuck and then figuring out how to unstick it uh, is is the core nature of the role.
0: Have you so far arrived to Somehow, your formula for unsticking it.
1: One of the features of the international development system, as I've discovered, is what I kind of call sort of Soviet five-year planning, um, and there are good reasons for this. Uh, but basically, work tends to get funded with large chunks of money for four, five, years, six-year periods, and most of it's coming from Western donor governments through international mechanisms of climate finance and, and, and other kind of uh, biodiversity-related finance mechanisms. And obviously, if you're a donor government putting in you know, hundreds of millions or billions of donor money, you want some uh, accountability in terms of how that money is going to be spent, where it's going to be sent, spent on what activities, and what for what result. So what this leads to is these very thick, elaborate project documents that take months or sometimes years to put together by huge, elaborate teams, and then a five-year plan. And then you hire another bunch of people to go off and execute these plans. Logically, that kind of makes sense. um, And you understand why why the system is set up that way. But it's highly problematic when you're dealing with complexity and systems change because It presupposes that you can figure out in advance what needs to happen, what needs to change, and then you can just get on and do it, and that it's going to have predictable results, uh, which, of course, isn't the case. So perversely, I think that's effectively way overcomplicating things. My hypothesis on how change happens is a much more in-the-moment process of you know, firstly, connecting key players across the system. So it's building greater connectivity of relationships between different actors within any system. So here, let's just say, you know, I work quite a bit on palm oil in Indonesia. So palm oil being a major driver of tropical deforestation. Uh, we work with various ministries across the national government. We work with, uh, you know, industry associations, large corporates, plantation companies, farm associations, civil society organizations, one of the most significant things you can do is simply connect up all those different parts of a system uh, and get them to increase their level of understanding of each other, because typically they don't connect and typically they don't understand each other. So just helping people get a broader, wider perspective can um, enable them to make more intelligent decisions that take uh, take into account the wider systemic factors. And then keeping that conversation going, basically, so helping people align around well, what is the nature of the problem we're trying to solve, what's the direction we're trying to go in, what are our hypotheses around how change can happen, and then basically trying things out and noticing what happens. So, like a collective sense-making process, which uh, you know comes with a lot of fancy words, but in a way can be quite simple. It's about keeping open channels of communication and conversation uh, so that the kind of the collective intelligence of the system itself is enhanced and therefore it can it can act in more intelligent ways. So actually what that looks like in practice is kind of getting people together to share perspectives, share knowledge, share challenges, share obstacles, share what's working, what isn't working, and then to iterate and improve that. So when you boil that down into super simple language, it's basically connecting people to have conversations. You could make it almost as simple as that.
0: And that what you just said, it actually creates the the trust and the glue in, in that kind of human system, right?
1: Yeah, when you ask people what is necessary for effective collaboration, uh, they will very early on will say trust and relationships. I think everybody understands that. And yet, when you look at how a process is implemented, it can become very transactional. And there is very little attention paid to how you build trust and relationships. And again, it's a bit counterintuitive because when you're dealing with something as critical and urgent as tropical deforestation, there can be this sense of impatience. We need to get on. We need to find the solutions. We need to implement solutions but the way you build trust and relationships is a much more human. So it's about uh, connecting human beings to meet each other, to get to know each other, uh, to, to literally develop that under, you know, shared understanding and trust that can look like, you know, having a conversation about who you are, what you care about, your family, your challenges. Um, if you're very technocratically minded, these can feel like un, sort of unnecessary niceties that are getting in the way of getting on to the real work. So, the real work is considered to be the technical fixing work. But actually, I think the real work is the soft relationship building, trust building. So, my hypothesis is the more time you spend on that work, the easier the rest of it becomes and the, and the more naturally and organically it flows and happens.
0: Going back to you, Charlie, um, what is your, your passion? You know, that thing that you are also willing to suffer for, if needed, of course.
1: I've done a fair amount of work over the years to sort of connect to my sense of purpose, probably because of my sort of Catholic indoctrination from my childhood. I always felt that life uh, should be about making a difference and a contribution and, and something about finding meaning. Uh, so that's been a kind of an ongoing fascination of mine is sort of what am I here for? What am I about? What's my contribution? And where I got to a few years back was this notion of what I call catalyzing the connection revolution. I've been sort of on a journey to understand what that means for me over the last few years. And I'd say if the first part of connection Well, first of all, one of my insights is the reason I feel so motivated by the need to connect comes from a place of disconnection. So recognizing disconnection in my own life uh, in terms of how I managed to disconnect or how I was disconnected by society or how I managed to disconnect myself through the process of kind of growing up. So connection is about reconnection. Uh, so it's first of all reconnection to the self, reconnection from you know the way I talk about it is from is from head to heart and heart to body. You know I, I grew up in Britain in the kind of seventies and eighties. I went to a boarding school. I had a very traditional education. Uh, went to Oxford. So uh, sort of from a head based point of view, I was reasonably successful at navigating through that system but I wasn't necessarily as connected to kind of my heart and my embodiment as I might be. So I've spent the last sort of 30 years reconnecting at those levels and then connecting to others from a heart. So what I call a heart to heart level, you know, not just a head to head set of ideas, but actually some sort of deeper emotional connection with others and then from, from heart to, uh, and body to the world, uh, you know, to the planet, to the universe, and the fact that we are not these sort of individual isolated objects that arrive from outer space that kind of walk on this planet, but that we actually are, we actually are this planet. You know, we grew out of this planet. We are inseparable from the planet. So that sense of connection to the wider whole. So I think... Those different dimensions of connection, connection to self, connection to other, connection to the greater whole, are in effect the kind of solution to many of our global challenges. Because I think it's from it's from disconnection that we uh, are able to do things that harm others and, and harm the environment because we don't feel that they are a part of us or the environment is a part of us. And so that it's somehow other. Than us, and therefore it's okay for others to be in poverty or for ecosystems to be collapsing because somehow we're separate and and we're we're still okay. Whereas of course we're not.
0: <laughs> was this kind of disconnection that you felt uh, in the beginning of, of your life, so to say, because of the system you were part of, you know, the education or something, or was it anything else behind that made you feel that kind of? disconnect to the as you call it heart?
1: I think it is basically embedded in the system that we live in uh, you know I would say it's probably a lot of it is coming from the progress through the through the enlightenment and through the development of capitalism over the last sort of 150 years in terms of this movement towards rationality as the as the kind of dominant mode of how we are, how we understand and relate with the, with the world, and then through through capitalism, this movement towards kind of radical individualism and the sense that we're all separate and and the kind of elements of social Darwinianism in that we're all separate and competing with each other, um, I think is very embedded in particularly in Western culture and European culture. Um, from a family point of view, and I, I my father was a was a lawyer. My grandfathers were both lawyers. Um, so there's a kind of tradition of rationality within my family, which obviously i would have I would have picked up. I went to boarding school when I was eleven. In order to survive in sort of re- a relatively young age in that kind of environment, there there needs to be a certain level of you know shutting down and self-protection. I think often we consider these to be kind of normal parts of growing up. There's sort of nothing overtly wrong with the experience. It appears to be fine. Uh, but I think there are ways in which our culture, our society, uh, our economic system forces us to put up barriers to protect ourselves, kind of internal and external barriers. So there is a subtle process of cutting off that happens in that, which is why, you know, the research on the fact that having a psychopathic personality can be an advantage or historically has been an advantage for getting on in the world of business and that the kind of the, the psychological profiling of CEOs they tend to have a sort of uh, a, a sort of an outweighted balance of psychopathic personality types at ceo level uh, because we live in a system where those type of behaviors can actually help you get on
0: And what made you actually swap from uh, the world of, you know, finance and venture capital into the world of systemic change and United Nations, et cetera?
1: So I've always been interested in change and how to make change happen. You know, after, after Oxford, I spent a year at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where I was very much looking towards more of the foreign office, foreign service as a way of making a contribution. What, one of the, my insights during that year was that actually business in some aspects has more power than governments. And if I wanted to make a positive contribution, it might make more sense to go into business than into you know, the civil service, for example. So even when I went into my finance and venture capital work, it was always with the orientation of wanting to make a difference and then i just spent a very long time trying to figure out and discern how to make a difference but after my vc job i spent a number of years working with early stage ventures what i call kind of mission driven businesses trying to make a social environmental impact and and you know work bringing my finance skills of of you know strategy business planning fundraising etc uh kind of to those early stage ventures but i've i've always been most curious about how change Happens and how to facilitate change. So, in a way, I'm a little bit sort of agnostic about where I do it and how I do it. And I also feel that many of our organizational forms are basically just social constructions. So, I'm, I'm not particularly I'm not particularly overly attached to the notion of the separation between business, government, civil society. In my mind, as a species, we tend to collaborate. Uh, we're, effective, we're a very effective species for collaboration. We've created these these constructs, uh, these kind of legal constructs of enabling collaboration, but they are they are literally sort of fictions. They are sort of convenient fictions. Uh, the way business operates, the way government operates, these are just a set of rules that got sort of invented, evolved over over generations, and so I'm not particularly attached to the difference the supposed difference between these different organizational forms, even even though clearly the forms themselves create a certain set of behaviors uh, within them. But I think we need to kind of loosen our attachment to these forms and start to evolve them in different ways. So, you know, partly it's about government becoming more adaptive, more entrepreneurial, but it's also about business broadening its kind of circle of concern So business, you know, isn't just about the bottom line. It is about its wider impact. Uh, And we need to think about how do we change the rules of the game so that it's not just a kind of voluntary optional thing for business to care about its employees, to care about its customers, to care about impacts on the environment. But we begin to change the rules of the game so that's integrated into how companies
0: operate. I Actually, yesterday had a a talk with... um... Rebecca uh, Henderson and we were discussing this uh, fact that is um, happening here and there is that that actually companies are lobbying to the governments around changing policies and laws that are not in a traditional sense I- in their favor, <laughs> but it's actually good for the whole for the whole so to say, and that's kind of interesting. You know everything from like pricing, you know. Uh, carbon or whatever use of resources put the real kind of price you know the full price on it, etc et etc cetera, et cetera. and i thought, I thought that was an uh, interesting thing, although it's it's not probably mainstream yet, but it's an interesting tendency that the corporations are getting in touch with governments to to change you know the rules for the best of the whole
1: yeah i mean we're we've been encouraging businesses to do that um i I wrote a report last year um around private sector engagement in creating the enabling conditions for sustainable production in in large agricultural commodity producing countries. There was a hypothesis, which I think was advanced by NGOs, sort of Greenpeace and and WWF and others, effectively to simplify it, that kind of governments are useless. And therefore, let's put pressure on companies and make uh, force companies to clean up their supply chain. So if we're looking at You know, deforestation from palm oil or soy or beef, let's put the pressure on the companies and then they will clean up their own supply chains and that's going to fix the problem. And that's a strategy that's been tried for the last 20 years uh, and it just hasn't worked for a number of reasons. One of them being that supply chains are like way more complicated than people realize. So if you're a Nestle or a Unilever and you're supplying uh, palm oil or you're sourcing palm oil into your supply chain, the palm oil is multiple levels down, you don't have direct control over it. And it's also coming from literally millions of smallholder farmers feeding into the system. So tracking where it comes from, tracing it is a phenomenally complicated uh, thing. But even when you do that, so some, some companies have done that job, and they've cleaned out their supply chains. There's plenty of parts of the world that aren't asking for that and don't need it. So now you have a two tier system We've got 20% of global palm oil is is uh, certified under um, the Roundtable Sustainable Palm Oil Certification Scheme, and it feeds into companies like Nestle and Unilever and Ferrero and others. And then you've got 80% of the market that doesn't, you know, is get consumed domestically in Indonesia or Malaysia where it's produced, or it goes to China, it goes to India, it goes to Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. So after 20 years of trying the strategy, people finally had to admit that governments do matter, and that really raising legal minimums is the way that you fix a problem. And therefore, if you are a company that cares about this stuff, and many of the big brands do care about it, it's in your own self-interest to advocate to governments to raise standards. And of course, governments always hesitant to raise standards because they think business is going to be against it. But the more progressive businesses are increasingly for progressive regulation of environmental and social standards, because for them, it's actually helping to level the playing field. Because otherwise, they're putting themselves at a competitive disadvantage by taking on more costs than other companies that competitors are having to carry.
0: Tolly, going back to you, um, what would you say are the transformational points in your life that have influenced you uh, the most?
1: Key one would be my mid-career master's when I was in my mid-30s. I did a master's um, at Bath, which was uh, co-founded by Anita Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop. And it was within the School of Business at Bath University. Um, But it was a a very radical, far-out program uh, that was bringing in sort of the work of deep ecology, for example. Uh, so it was a hugely transformational program over a couple of years, uh, but it was the first time in my life in which different threads that previously had felt competing with each other or attention with each other suddenly sort of came together in a kind of an integrated manner. I guess I found a worldview which felt integrated and satisfying, sort of integrating my understanding of business, economics, government ecology the environment spirituality cosmology so I'm, I'm not sure i could necessarily clearly articulate what that is to to, to others uh, except beyond sort of a level at which now understanding the fundamental interconnectedness of everything of all life which which is a kind of an obvious thing to say really if you just think a little more deeply about the history of the evolution of the universe and this planet and how we came to be on it, it becomes quite simple to understand. And yet when you look at many of our economic, social, political systems, they appear to be designed in in kind of ignorance of some of these basic facts. It was immensely satisfying to kind of arrive at this integrated worldview having felt the sense of grappling with things before then and not figuring out how things fitted together, and then arriving at a worldview that felt satisfying and integrated and makes sense. But then the challenge is, what do you do with that? Because you're still operating in a world where many of these contradictions still exist. At a very simple level, I see the way in which we give primacy to economics uh, over, say, physics. So physics is the physics of climate change is one example of physics of, you know, interconnected systems of, of, of kind of biodiversity and ecology on the planet. Economics is basically a kind of socially constructed model for how we might collaborate effectively as a, as a society. And we tend to hear messages that effectively that we can't afford, afford environmental protection because of the economic costs or consequences. Uh, but if you boil that down, that's basically saying that we're going to give primacy to economics, which is socially constructed over physics, which is a fundamental, you know, about the fundamental laws of the universe. So this is where I think our civilization uh, is coming up against the sort of the hard truths of of, of how things actually work and operate. But I mean, I, I think that's at a kind of increasing and accelerating crisis, which is inevitably going to lead to increasing and accelerating breakdown. But I also realise that it's a kind of necessary process for people to shift and change a worldview is for their existing worldview to start to crumble uh, is, is kind of then creates the space for something new to arise. So it's a, it's a very difficult transition point for us as individuals as, as a society but it's also somehow a necessary part of how change happens
0: interesting and and so so true I feel as well what is there like um long-term solution or formula for business that you believe in
1: it's challenging to live in a time of transition because the further ahead you're kind of your own insights are, let's say insights into the nature of reality, uh, the more they can be at tension with the kind of current way things work. And you see it in you see it when large corporates have very visionary CEOs who really want to stretch you know that their the kind of imagination is stretched beyond the current current understanding of what a corporation is and what it can do and what its responsibilities are. Um, and sort of whether it's, um, you know, the CEO of Danone, who recently lost his job, um, or people like Paul Palmer at Unilever really pushing the boundaries of what's the role of business, what's the responsibility of business. Uh, and they can get a kickback, they can get a kickback from the markets, uh, from sort of activist investors, uh, who don't who don't like the way that's going. And they feel there are trade offs between doing good in the world and, 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 and the bottom line. So it's tricky to walk that balance because you want to both change the system, uh, but also you, you, you're still operating within the system. I think the sort of visionary CEOs and leaders in business really need to do need to think about what's their influence in terms of changing the rules of the game. Because there's only so far you can go within the current rules of the game before you start hitting up against those boundaries and those kickbacks. So if, if we want a sustainable economic system, we need to change the rules of the game. And this is where the, the kind of the corporate advocacy piece comes in, where uh, sort of more progressive thinking business leaders need to think about how they give uh, more encouragement and courage to, to politicians uh, and policymakers to really change the, change the rules of the game, change the economic parameters we operate within. And then, of course, there's things like, um, you know, B, the B Corp movement is a good example of, you know, even in the absence of, of policy changing, how companies can still, uh, you know, change the rules of them, get the game themselves, change expectations of, of customers, change expectations of employees, but then embed them in, in the kind of constitutions of a business so they can't just be changed by the next leader or the next board who you know have a who have a change of view. So yeah, I think it's I think it's about a combination of vision and courage, uh, but also pragmatism in terms of how to embed those changes in sort of systemically and not make them dependent on individual leaders.
0: Now, for example, Paul Pullman was really um, working hard on on, and being positively stubborn over so many years before he got things going. So even if, as you say, you need to kind of integrate whatever change you have in the system, it still needs this kind of leader that, that is showing the way to to others and being the example at at all times.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, a key thing that Unilever did even way before Paul Pullman became the chief exec was a lot of work around purpose. In the organization. And they started with the leadership, but ultimately cascaded through the whole company in terms of inviting um, staff members to reflect on their own purpose. So, what's the purpose of your life as an individual? You know, once you've understood the purpose of your life as an individual, what does that mean for your purpose in this company, in this organization? What does that mean for our collective purpose as an organization? What sort of world do we want to create? Um, and I think you know that's a way of of bringing that's the way of bringing purpose to life in any organisation, but in a company, and bringing it to life in a way that has the kind of collective intelligence of uh, you know uh, of the staff embedded in the purpose and in uh, you know the buy-in, and support, and, and and momentum of the workforce. But I mean, there are other examples where that has backfired. I know that um, in, in the kind of uh, Grant Thornton, which is a kind of mid-tier accountancy firm, they had a visionary CEO called Sasha Romanovich, who was advancing you know, the purpose-led business agenda. I think there was some kickback from that, basically. So, so there was some resistance and kickback. And then if the financial results don't sort of demonstrate the impact, the positive impact you know in that case she effectively lost her role um and i th- my impression is they kind of took a step backwards at least from the point of view of of kind of purpose led leadership they took a step backwards
0: although there are so many nowadays also you know proofs and kpis and measurements and so on that is really connecting whatever you would call the purpose led way of of um, organizing yourself as a business and then uh, uh, the end results connected to that is always uh, positive
1: there is a case, and there are plenty of examples where there are the, it, it is a win win. Uh, but I think also the reality there are there are also trade offs. You know, there's there's a lot you can do to create win wins within the existing rules of the game, but ultimately there are certain things that aren't win win. You know, so customers tend in in some markets tend to be very price sensitive. So, for example, in the in the food market where I currently work, um, customers will always tell you that they prefer a kind of organic, ethical, fairly traded product. But they don't necessarily follow through in terms of their willingness to pay a premium for that. And when you are on a on a sort of struggling income um, and, and struggling to feed your family, um, you're always going to basically buy the cheapest product or most people are going to buy the cheapest product in the supermarket and you're going to prioritize your own family over you know the other people the families in the supply chain that aren't visible to you so this is a challenge you know when you you've got small you know millions of smallholder farmers living on you know below subsistence levels in these global supply chains that we we're, we're basically buying every single day from the supermarket these products if we were to pay a sort of let's say a, a fairer price a fairer wage down the chain and all the way through the chain and if we were to pay for all the environmental costs that we're currently externalizing if a company was to choose to do that they would end up with an uncompetitive product that people wouldn't buy it would be a, or at least it would be a very niche product so that you know, if you're a small, if you're a small brand that is branded around, you know, organic, ethical, fair trade, you can definitely there's definitely a very good niche market to be made there. You can definitely make, you know, hundreds of millions or even billions of revenue. But if you are Nestle or Unilever, uh, you just simply cannot go that way overnight because your your product portfolio would become uncompetitive. Um, So this is where, yes, you can get win-wins, but also for the the greater win of of the greater whole, we do need to change the rules of the game.
0: If you assume that you have all doors open now and all resources available to you, what would you like rush to uh, innovate or or, or change?
1: I know the value of that question, uh, but actually what I'm trying to practice at the moment is basically being with things exactly as they are, it can be quite alluring to think, you know, if only I had, you know, if only I was in charge of the the kind of the Rockefeller Foundation, or if only I, you know, had authority over, you know, X billions or this ministry or that portfolio, whatever, and to think that somehow that would fix things. But what I'm increasingly becoming curious about is all the limitations and constraints that we all experience and actually trying to figure out how to be more effective working within all those constraints because actually that is the essence of the kind of, I think, the art of change is to be, you know, the ninja move, if you want, is, is not to have all the resources at your disposal is actually to have sort of apparently nothing at your disposal and still do something significant. And I can't say I've unlocked that, but it's a good question to ask myself. And I think a lot of the answer probably comes to uh, something about slowing down and unlearning things. Uh, so I think a lot of the time I and all of us are stuck in habits of behavior and sort of somewhat reactive habits of behavior. Uh, we have a stimulus and we just have an automated sort of mostly unconscious response. So I think the ninja move is about, uh, slowness and stillness and then real precision in, in action. Uh, so that's more of a, that's more of a me connecting to my inner resources that are there anyway. If I would take the time to connect to them rather than outer resources, I don't have many heroes, but one of them was Václav Havel, um, who was a Czech, Czechoslovak dissident uh, playwright in the 60s, 70s and 80s, who was uh, in prison in uh, June of uh, 1989. And by December, he was the president. And he wrote a seminal essay in the uh, in the 70s called The Power of the Powerless, uh, which is about what do you do when you're faced with uh, a a massive incumbent regime of sort of incomparable power? And you are basically a nobody with no power, no voice. Um, And for him, it was about the truth. So sort of the speaking truth to power, almost regardless of the consequences because if you speak truth to power, regardless of the consequences, there's an immense power in that because you are kind of unmovable and unshakable. And I think we all tend to compromise ourselves all the time by not being in contact with the truth or our truth. And so effectively we just decide that it's easier to go along with the status quo that's how systems perpetuate themselves it's it's basically by everybody agreeing that it's just a little bit easier to go along with it so i think you know again this is where the kind of the slowing down the stillness and the ninja move is to be much more in contact with you know what we think the truth is in any situation and then acting from that place
0: but essentially also connecting to our inner self and some kind of sense of deep humanity and the guide from there.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a person who believes in the fundamental goodness of people and also the fundamental wisdom of people. And, and this is also influencing how we're thinking about change at the UN development program, where for a long time, we've been, we've been thinking a lot about the importance of mindset shift so how do we shift mindsets? Uh, and increasingly, we be, we began to sort of question ourselves over that, um, the, the ethics of kind of coming in and shifting someone's mindset because it sort of it can give the illusion that you've got the right the right mindset and they've got the wrong one, and all you need to do is go in and fix their mindset. And increasingly, I think the work is much more about understanding other people's mindsets. And actually understanding that wherever somebody is in society, in a system, and whatever they're doing, there is a wisdom in what they're doing. There is an intelligence in what they're doing. And actually, they are well adapted to the situation they find themselves in. So rather than kind of judging others and trying to fix them or change them, I think the sort of the ninja move in in sort of systemic change work is to really understand where somebody else is coming from to really get in a place of empathy where you can therefore you know meet them where you can build trust and relationship and then where you actually do have the potential and possibility of changing something
0: and charlie if you could give one piece of advice to leaders who are listening now what would that be
1: slowing down we're in a a business culture and a, a culture more widely, that is all about rush and speed. Uh, so I think slowing down is incredibly important to really focus on on what's necessary. The other big one is, is kind of unlearning and not knowing. And again, it speaks to what I said a minute ago about our sort of ways of responding in a habituated fashion, unconsciously quite often, based on what we think we know. And I think the great leaders have an ability to not know, an ability to be humble. And that really enhances your listening capacity. Because if you you come in not feeling attached to an answer and much more curious uh, about hearing from others and understanding others, then the chances of seeing something different, of learning something new are far, far greater. So it's very challenging. You know, people rise to the top because of, their skillfulness in getting things done, of you know, understanding how things work, being effective implementers, et cetera, et cetera. And undoubtedly, those skills still come into play. Uh, but when you're trying to, as I do, I spend my time thinking about how do we shift these intractable problems? I think we have to accept that whatever we've been doing up until now hasn't been working typically and we need to do something different. So the way to do something different is to kind of, is to slow down, to unlearn what we think we know, and to become much more curious about learning something else, something new.
0: If you were to give advice to yourself, then like, let's say 10, 15 years ago or so, is there anything that comes to mind?
1: I think the trap that I fell into for many, many years was um, thinking what I knew needed to be different. Uh, and in a way I still, I still think that, (laughs) I mean, I still sort of attached to my idea of how the world should be, it would be a, would be a better world. You know, what I think the secret of change is, uh, one of the secrets of change is, is to kind of give up your own ideas of what you think, what change ought to happen, uh, and really pay much more attention to what's ready to happen. People that are very forward thinkers get very frustrated by the kind of the, the kind of the, the, the kind of dysfunction that they see around them and they can see a way in which, oh, it could be so different. I realize now that things that see, maybe I felt were obvious you know 10, 20, 30 years ago are still in many cases just in the process of emerging, just in the process of being born and getting traction. And that's very frustrating when we have these massive global issues that feel very urgent. But I think if you're too attached to what needs to happen, I mean that, that can be an advantage. It can drive a certain focus and, and energy. But I what I'm much more interested in at the moment is letting go of my own ideas and becoming much curious about well, what's ready to happen, what wants to happen. And if you're working in, you know, in an organization or in a a, a wider system. So we work a lot at the national level and we work with sort of global kind of food systems, really paying attention to, you know, what are are the signals, where's the energy, where's the momentum, where, you know, where can we build a coalition around some common ground, where can we create some shared vision and alignment? So it, it becomes much less about leading change and much more about, Uh, sort of facilitating it it would have been helpful for me to learn that lesson a lot earlier Uh, but ultimately I think I just learned it through sort of trying too many times to impose my own ideas on the world and discovering the world wasn't very interested in them so um, I've become maybe a lot more humble in the process and hopefully eventually more effective
0: and so what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now
1: from my perspective, I would love more companies to to think about the bigger picture. Um, I think it takes a certain level of maturity in, in a leader or leaders to do that. I think if you're, if you're in a more of a survival mentality, you tend to focus on the short term and what's directly ahead of you um the problem is we live in a culture where everybody's doing that and and kind of what makes sense in the short term collectively if we add all that together does not add up to a pretty future in the long term so the more leaders and the more companies that can think bigger picture can think longer term the better certain industries lend themselves more to that so industries and you know, infrastructure and extractives and whatnot where you're looking at investment decisions that have, you know, decadal implications, you tend to have, you tend to be more long-term thinking. Uh, some industries that are, you know, particularly kind of consumer-driven industries that are can be much more short-term. The effects of these collective decisions, um, you know, have ramifications for all of us and, and, and not just on a sort of decadal basis but we're talking about you know the effects will have uh, literally it's probably not an exaggeration to say things we're doing now could have an effect for millions of years Uh, you know it it will be recorded in the archaeological record and already in my lifetime in some 54 we've seen uh, you know, some seventy percent of, of of some species uh, have dropped in numbers. You know, ecosystems have collapsed, um, and just the the scale of the impact of the last generation is almost beyond belief. And we're in a kind of we're in a we're in a kind of increasing, accelerating path of uh, environmental collapse. So it's a little bit frustrating. That's quite so many people are fix, fixated on, you know, the next quarter or the next year or, you know, the next three years. Um, because if we carry on doing that, uh, we're going to f- sort of fall off a cliff uh, collectively as a, as a, as a, as a species. Uh, and some countries are already falling off cliffs. Uh, you know, so Syria fell off a cliff, Yemen, etc., and that is only likely to accelerate. Uh, so we need leaders who begin to pay like way way more attention to the longer term, um, and and to make decisions from that basis.
0: And my final question to you, Charlie, is this one: What do you think the world needs most at this time?
1: The truth is that everything is connected, everything is fundamentally interconnected. And so when you live, and act from a place of disconnection and behave as if we were disconnected um that will have negative consequences in 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 various different dimensions and so if we keep on acting from a place of disconnection uh, we will kind of keep on accelerating kind of negative impacts in our lives and in in the world Uh, extent to which we can reconnect, so reconnect with ourselves, who we are, what we care about, what matters to us, reconnect, you know, with our families, with friends, with our communities, um, and with, you know, others whose lives we invisibly impact, you know, so I'm just in my everyday decisions, I'm impacting people all over the world. In, in you know I can just look around the table that I'm sitting at and any any product I can pick on this table and I could you know point to you know I could probably find farmers multiple farmers at the at the bottom of supply chains whether it's kind of timber or coffee or you know people um, working in mines etc around the world so the more that we can begin to see all those connections, and begin, therefore, to take collective responsibility for how things are, then we will make better and, and wiser decisions. Vaslav Havel also talked about hope. You know, uh, hope is not, I can't remember exactly the quote, but hope is not a belief that things will turn out well, but hope is a kind of more of an orientation to life uh, that, regardless of how things turn out, it's still worth doing. So I do feel hopeful, despite sort of the tone of some of my comments on the kind of the environmental and social crises that we find ourselves in the midst of, those crises exist because of a dysfunctional system. And, you know, my hope is that through these crises, we will discover and unlock a much better way of being a much better way of organizing ourselves in societies. And I mean, fundamentally, I am hopeful that that is the path we're on, and realizing that breakdown and breakthrough are part of the of the same process. So, although I've talked quite about quite a few things breaking down, I think there is also at the same time as the same thing is the breakthrough. Because as things break down, it creates the space for new things to emerge, new new ideas, new ways of being, new ways of organizing. Um, so, I think the world is getting a lot worse, and a lot better at the same time, and so I'm fundamentally hopeful about the getting better nature of reality and the, and the kind of the intelligence of evolution towards kind of increasing and increasing intelligence. So um yeah, but I, I think for me the, the the key that can unlock that is is around connection, reconnecting to self, connecting to other, and connecting to the wider whole.
0: Thank you, thank you so much, um, Charlie. Thanks for sharing everything. And I'm just curious, how was it to be on the on the podcast?
1: Nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> given I know I've listened to a fair few of your of your of your other podcasts, and um, many of your interviewees have have written way more books than I have, given that I've written none. And so, therefore, I feel you know certain people have have put greater effort into organizing their thinking. And my thinking still feels quite emergent. And uh, and I think that's quite important for what I do is not to be too attached to my, my own ideas, but yeah, I mean, I certainly enjoy your line of questioning because those are those type of questions are the ones that we all need to be asking ourselves all the time.
0: Thank you, Charlie. So to find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplug.com and remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people who you know would benefit from hearing Charles and please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it thank you for listening and until next time live with purpose and remember to unplug